Hi, everybody. It's Ward with Eric, my normal co-host when we do history episodes of the Proceedings Podcast. So, Eric, 100 years of aircraft carriers with the U.S. Navy. Quite a milestone. The celebrations have begun in earnest. Our CFO attended a gala aboard the George H.W. Bush on Sunday night. Mm-hmm. And I think that was the first of these. There'll be some others at San Diego. I know they're going to do some aboard the aircraft carriers that are stationed out there. So as a guy who spent most of my active duty career flying from aircraft carriers, this is a fantastic thing to recognize and to contextualize. And so today our guest is going to talk about the very beginnings of aircraft carriers. So why don't we go ahead and bring him aboard? Absolutely. Ward, good to see you again. Uh, Yes, it was 100 years ago this very month that the first U.S. aircraft carrier was commissioned. And here to talk with us about that today is David F. Winkler, uh, staff historian for the Naval Historical Foundation. Uh, Dave spent a year at the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum as the Charles Lindbergh um, Chair of Aviation History. And in doing so, he researched the first U.S. carrier, the USS Langley. And in the course of his researches, he came up with um, some pretty interesting primary source material that is the crux of his article in the current issue of Naval History Magazine. Um, and I'll let him talk to you about that. But in at least one case that really intrigued me, it, this may have rewritten the history books. So, uh, Dave, welcome aboard. Great to see you. Hey, great to be with you, Eric and Ward. Uh, yeah, no, I'm uh, looking forward to chatting a little bit about the USS Langley, our Navy's first aircraft carrier. Yeah, why don't you set it up for us? Uh, give the folks uh, at home um, sort of the prehistory, if you will, of how the um, ship that became the Langley became the Langley. Well, uh, it was, um, you know, and naval aviation really has its origins uh, with the, uh, the the Navy. Of course, you know, we have the, uh, you know, first landings, uh, you know, on the Pennsylvania, uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, first catch shot uh, uh, 1915 with Henry uh, Muston, uh, I believe it was to North Carolina. Uh, and, uh, but it's the British really uh, have to employ aviation, uh you know, doing World War One, uh, because you know there's a, a threat uh, to uh, London, England, uh, by these uh, zeppelins. So they they need to get aircraft up uh, to challenge these uh, dirigibles. So you know the British take the lead in aircraft carrier development, and by the end of the war, they're actually flying aircraft off of decks of uh, converted ships. Uh, you know, HMS Furious is an example of one. Uh, uh, and it, it, you know we 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 take note here in the United States. Uh, you know we we see the potential for these uh, uh, platforms that are flying these uh, you know the, these these new inventions, uh, airplanes, and uh, you know we see we see the potential you know, not only uh, to be like spotters for battleships, but you know as actual. Uh, uh, offensive weapons, or at, or at least, and initially, at least to help defend the fleet. So, you know, during 1918, there's discussions. Uh, at the time, the uh, the general board, the Navy has a general board that kind of looks into uh, future planning, and you know, they're making an argument. Well, you know, if the British are building six aircraft carriers, we certainly uh, could use six aircraft carriers. Well, uh, World War One uh, kind of it comes to an abrupt halt in. Uh, 
November 11th, uh, you know, 1918. Uh, uh, it's kind of kind of surprised quite a few folks. Uh, the Navy doing World War One. Uh, you know, we're uh, focused on seaplanes. We use seaplanes in France, England, Ireland to you know try and track down uh, German U-boats. But you know, discussions continue in 1919. There's some serious discussions before the uh, you know the Navy board. Well, we would really like to pursue this aircraft carrier, but the problem is, is there's no budget. Okay, the, uh, you know, we spent a lot of money doing World War One, and you know, the nation really isn't uh, uh, into financing, you know, aircraft carrier development. So a compromise is reached with the uh, the thought is, okay, well, maybe we can convert a ship, and uh, they, you know, initially they're thinking about cruise liners, and you know, the British actually. Uh, took a, a cruise liner that was being built uh, uh, and converted it uh, into uh, an aircraft carrier. But, you know, uh, what they kind of seized upon is, well, we have these Colliers. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, Colliers came into service, uh, you know, a, a decade earlier because when we did the you know the Great White Fleet. Uh, we we had to depend on foreign navies to uh, to keep those uh, uh, you know coal bins stoked. So uh, you know that was kind of an embarrassment. So uh, you know in the nineteen ten uh, you know twelve time frame, we we commissioned three colliers: the Cyclops, the Neptune, and the Jupiter. And each had a different engineering plant. Uh, in the case of the Jupiter, it was an electric drive plant, and. Uh, uh, and because of that, it had two screws that actually could get up to 16 knots. They said, well, let's, let's take that one. So, um, Jupiter was brought to the Norfolk Navy Yard, uh, about 1920, uh, and, uh, was renamed Langley. And, uh, it, it, as it was mentioned, uh, last Sunday, uh, it, it had the, uh, a centennial of the commissioning and there's a story behind that but um I'll, I'll, I'll leave it to you for the follow-on questions right uh well let me uh, go to my uh naval aviator colleague let him step in here you've got a stake in this particular subject matter so dave you 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 said first we're thinking of this as a uh sort of patrol plane opportunity but also with an eye on let's just call it power project power projection. Um, so was there a side of the Navy that was fighting the idea of developing aircraft carriers at all? What what headwinds uh, were the uh, aviators and their supporters facing as Langley came online? Well, it's kind of interesting is that uh, there was a divide. Uh, the, the CNO uh, uh, I believe it was Benson was, you know, really, uh, uh, he, he's a, he's a big gun guy and he, he's really doesn't see much need for these, uh, uh flying machines. Uh, you know, it's the big guns are going to, you know, be decisive, but it's a general board on the other hand, uh, you know, they get it, uh, and they, they see the potential and they kind of push this through, um, and, and keep in mind that the CNO, the, that, that office had just been established. So there's kind of this, uh, within the Navy, uh, it's uh, there's a, these power centers. Uh, there's the General Board, there's the CNO's office, and then there's the Secretary of Navy, Josephus Daniels. And uh, uh, 
they persuade uh, Josephus Daniels that yeah, we, we need to do this. And then the argument, there was a big argument amongst the aviators themselves. Uh, okay, what do we do use these airplanes for? Uh, and, uh, you know, the, the, uh, there are some of the aviators that, well, we just need to, uh, you know, uh, we launch the aircraft and they go do their thing uh, and uh, attack and then we don't have to worry about them anymore. And uh, uh, so we don't need to have an airplane, you know, aircraft carrying. And, and that, that, uh, that thought didn't uh, carry too much weight because, you know, the pilots, uh, you know, they'd like to get recovered. So, you know, there was, uh, uh, you know, the thought was, okay, we just need the aircraft for spotting, okay, so, uh, so, you know, find the enemy fleet, uh, direct naval gunfire, uh, and, uh, you know, that uh, that will be the mission for naval aviation. And then, you know, the, but there were uh, others such as uh, Kenneth Whiting, for example, who saw the potential right away, you know, let's get these things out, armed with torpedoes, and they can be an offensive weapon in, in themselves. So uh, that that's where the friction was. And the question was, okay, capability. Can, uh, you know, th these airplanes actually deliver? So that's that's why Langley was brought into service, was to, uh, you know, experiment as an experimental platform to, to see, you know, just what the capabilities of aircraft were. So you... Um mentioned the North Carolina in the first cat shot and, and just so the audience understands that you know we're talking about carrier aviation or aircraft or operating at sea these battleships and other cruisers had like these derrick arms that you know a cat shot was just this thing that would and you had a seaplane that would launch and then the seaplane would land on the water and the ship would pick it up and put it back in place. So that's not exactly something that's going to generate a lot of sorties. Um, <laughs> and that's not offensive power, right? So this conception is fixed wing air, aircraft, not seaplanes um, that are, you know, taking off landing and we'd be able to generate a lot more than onesies and twosies that we can do now using our battleships or our, our cruisers. Um, so what were some of the sticky points in the early days of just doing basic carrier operations? And I'll, I'll put up a picture that shows, you know, just how, you know, hairy it, it was um, in terms of, you know, these guys are operating. There's no CV NATOPs. There's no um, rules yet, you know. Um, so these brave pilots are kind of inventing it on their on their own. Um, and if you watch some of the early footage, it, it it has its hairy moments. So what what were some of the things that they discovered right off the bat? Well, one of the things in, in that last uh, picture, if you look at it real close, you can see, um, you know, across between the wheels, that, that axle there, there's these little hooks, okay? And those hooks are designed to catch these fore and aft wires. Uh, and what, you know, the interesting thing, there you go, the... Uh, 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 the uh, uh, fiddle bridge, right? Yeah, the fiddle bridges, and uh, this was actually a British development that we kind of uh, borrowed from the British. Now, the, the interesting thing is that if you take a look at uh, Eugene Eli's landing on the Pennsylvania back uh, uh, 1911, uh, what they did is they they strung across uh, uh, some ropes across the deck and they planted them with sand. Uh, and you had the traditional uh, tail hook that we had uh, today. 
And eventually we go back to that. Uh, what they decided though with the uh, uh, with this fore and aft system that we uh, borrowed from the Brits and and tweaked uh, is that uh, this would keep the airplane from perhaps sliding off uh, to, to the, the port or starboard side of the ship, and and the, and the pilots kind of you know like that security. Um, and we would uh, have this four and a half system in place for about seven or eight years until we got very confident that just the uh, cross cable system that we use today is enough to the trap and security the airplane. But this whole cross cable system had to be tested out first. And you had this uh, Lieutenant Mel Pride, uh, who uh, was in you know, I guess uh, you're one of your first aviation engineering duty officers uh, set up this big apparatus on a, like a railroad turntable uh, down in Hampton Roads so that you could turn uh, the, the, the landing deck to face the wind, uh, you know, depending on the weather conditions. And he tested and tested, you know, the, the distances between the wires until he finally uh, became satisfied that you can trap and it is literally trapping an aircraft uh on the back of uh, of a flight deck and then they installed this system on the uh, langley so yeah it, it that's that was one of the biggest uh uh you know things they had to develop of course the other thing is the united states was uh, unique uh, we had an edge over great britain during uh world war one uh the Brits didn't have a catapult technology. That's something that we developed. And uh, uh, we employed a catapult uh, on board uh, Langley. They call it Little David. Um, and that was, uh, you know, helpful in in launching some of the bigger aircraft, like a seaplane, and actually would, ma would mount it on like a, a truck. Uh, and that catapult would uh, carry the truck, and then the seaplane would go off. But for the most part... Uh, you know, you go into a headwind, these light aircraft, uh, you know, they really didn't need to have a catapult uh, during those early days. Well, let's bring it around to your specific article, uh, Dave. It's in the current issue of Naval History, which I encourage everyone to read. And it's available at the newsstand today. There you go. Uh, anyway, um, in this article, you talk about that uh, first year, the kind of wild and woolly days where um, you, it covers the first uh, official takeoff, the first official landing. And our conduit to this world, the reader that is, is a fascinating primary source you came up with that um, there was a crewman on board the Langley at the time who kept a fairly detailed diary, Joseph Weller. And through his observations, we see these things. Um, I'll be curious to hear more about uh, the, the finding of this um, primary source and uh, all that, but it was just a treasure trove for the uh, lover of history and new perspectives on it from the, you know, a firsthand account. Uh, one of those is the um, Lieutenant uh, Virgil Squash Griffin, his first official takeoff from an aircraft carrier, the first official U S takeoff from an aircraft carrier. History records it as a uh, 17 October, 1922. But as, um, we find out from your firsthand eyewitness to history that might not be right. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah. Well, let's yeah, let's talk a little bit about this diary. And it's, it's Joseph Weller is an interesting uh, character because he comes into the Navy actually uh, uh, before the Great War, and he uh, uh, he he makes it all the way up, to, you know, he, uh, to a chief petty officer. He goes to electrician school in Brooklyn, and uh, you know, he becomes a, a 
uh, chief petty officer. He's stationed in Norfolk in 1919, and and he meets. Uh, uh, I guess he he's assigned to like a receiving ship, and he he meets uh, one of the yeomanettes. Uh, uh, you know, the Navy is the first service to recruit women. Well, he uh, 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 they have a relationship, and a child <laughs> comes from that. And uh, after after the war, he decides to get out. Uh, 1920, when his second uh, term of enlistment is up, and he decides, uh, I guess after, uh, he's hoping for work at the Navy Yard, uh, and unfortunately, uh, work, uh, they're, they're cutting construction jobs, uh, you know, we have the, the Naval Treaty of, uh, Washington Naval Arms Treaty of 19. Uh, 21, uh, 22, and that really cuts off construction work at the Navy Yard. So uh, what he decides to do is uh, re-enlist in the Navy, uh, and unfortunately, he can't get his old chief petty officer job back. So he's he's brought in as a blacksmith, and, uh, you know, he's happy. I think I think he comes in as a second-class petty officer and is assigned to the Langley just as the Langley is, is undergoing sea trials in September of uh, – uh, you know, 1922. So he's on uh, a board and he's a very technical mind and he's, uh, he, he's, uh, observing the sea trials. They, they assign him to be the gyroscope uh, operator. And he's just, he's no, he knows nothing about gyroscopes. He's just praying that the thing works. Uh, but, uh, he, uh, he wrote this diary, um, uh, and a copy of the diary wound up at, uh, the archives down in Pensacola at the, uh, Naval Aviation, National Naval Aviation Museum down there. And I was researching, uh, down there and came across it and it's, uh, it's gold, uh, as far as observations and I'm comparing it to the, you know, the ship's, uh, uh, log, uh, and, um, he has an entry in there. I think it's on October the third, where you know he actually uh, he's, they're testing the equipment, and he and he says that Griffin actually launched and dipped off the ship and took off and and landed ashore. Now, I need to go back to the archives and take a look at the deck logs for the uh, for verification. But uh, that that's kind of a uh, uh, that's a fine, and I'm I'm wondering. Well, you know, they had this big thing planned with all these VIPs and uh, camera crews for October the 17th. Do they want to test it just beforehand just to make sure this worked? Uh, You know, it would be very embarrassing if, uh, you know, they took off with all these camera crews cranking away and, you know, so, uh, you know, that's that needs further investigation. I, I need some collaboration on that before I, uh, I really, uh, you know, make big claims right it's it's fascinating to see though and I, and I have the same hypothesis as you i feel like it was the official with fanfare had been planned for 17 october so that's when it would be and it was squash griffin again anyway so the same pilot yeah um, but if he really did uh get off there that deck uh successfully and fly off on 3 october this is uh it's an example of how Buried in archives out there, folks, there's hitherto undiscovered facts of history in it. The writing of history is never finished. There's always something new to find out or um, something to correct. So this is very interesting. You're onto a, a hot trail here, and we're we're uh, thrilled to be able to publish it in Naval History. So. Yeah. No, the, the other thing, I ch- you know, of course, I came up with was the fact celebrated the centennial of the commissioning. Well, uh, you know, the commissioning... Uh, 
the reason why we had the commissioning on March the 20th is quite frankly, they ran out of money uh, from the Bureau of uh, Construction or Repair, you know, the funds to convert the ship. So what they decided to do, uh, and it, you know, I was kind of scratching my head, you know, they didn't have a really that big a fanfare as far as this commissioning is concerned. The XO, uh, Kenneth Whiting, Commander Whiting is the one who brought it in. Uh, there were, you know, no flag officers there, uh, uh, representative from the Navy Yard. And I said, well, well why is this not, not a big deal? Well, it turns out it's, it's just a, uh, it, it, it was an effort to put the ship into commissioning so they could draw from the fleet's operation and maintenance budget funds, you know, to, to finish the uh, installation of the, you know, uh, of, of the landing gear and do all the other things they needed to complete the conversion. The ship really wasn't ready for sea trials until September. You know, Captain Doyle, the first CO doesn't report aboard until June. Well, what, it's it's inter- it's a it's a fascinating time to be on board that particular ship. Um, well, a lot of the very you know historic firsts like the one we just talked about are taking place. Um, Weller, the diarist, also um, witnesses the first um, official successful landing on board a U.S. aircraft carrier, also on the Langley, and that was Lieutenant Commander uh, Godfrey. Sh- um, yeah, the, the Chevalier, yeah, the Chevalier. Yeah. Um, so anyway, that's kind of another historic first too, covered in the diary and covered in this article. Um, as an as a sad side note, though, um, um, Chevalier came to a, a sad end. Why don't you tell us about that? No, I, I, unfortunately, he's. Uh, I guess what you would do is you would actually feel like fly home for you know weekend duty. So he. He, he flies, uh, I guess, the Naval Air Station in Hampton, and, and, he, and he flew it. I guess his aircraft had like two tanks and the uh, uh, fuel tanks. And unbeknownst to him, um, uh, I guess the person who was maintaining thought that one of the tanks was full and uh, uh, gave him the uh, to get, you know, uh, the go ahead to, to take off. And, you know, he, he goes to, you know, fly you know, commute back to work on a Monday morning. And, uh, uh, before he realizes it, he, you know, he's sputtering and he, uh, he loses fuel. And before he can go back to the other tank, uh, you know, he ditches and, uh, the plane crashes. And unfortunately, uh, you know, he, uh, uh, he's injured and he, you know, he, uh, the extent of his injuries, uh, you know, he loses his life. That's a shame. One of our earliest, uh, Naval aviation pioneers, uh, uh, cut short all too soon. Yeah. Um, uh, perhaps we should talk about the aircraft. Uh, there's a couple mentioned in here that they were testing with. Um, uh, let's think what it would be like to be doing this. Um, it's uh, always been one of the scariest prospects to this humble civilian to see in uh, and, and all naval services landing um, an aircraft on a what look, must look like a postage stamp from up above on a rolling sea. And these individuals are doing it um, in these biplanes, uh, open cockpit. Um, it, it, take us inside what that would be like. Uh, well, you're you're looking at uh, basically, uh, you know, your World War One vintage type aircraft. Uh, uh, you know, the 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 the, the VE seven, for example. Uh, it's 
you you have it, it's it's not a steel frame ship. It's it's still got the old you know the old canvas sides, uh, you know wood frame type type of ship, uh, air, air ship air aircraft, and they're very light, uh, very maneuverable, uh, uh, and uh, you know the the pilots you know enjoyed uh, flying them. Uh, the challenge, and this is why Langley, uh, you know, it's one thing to take on these light uh, aircraft. It, it's when, but Navy aircraft is, are developing over the uh, over this time period where you're going to get, you know, much heavier, much faster steel aircraft, and that's uh, what the, the you know, over the Langley's first uh, couple of years is. To be to be able to adapt the flight deck, uh, you know, to take on these heavier aircraft. Uh, you know, the interesting thing about the uh, uh, the cross wire, uh, the cross cables, is that uh, they actually were attached to weights that uh, hung over the side, and as the plane landed uh, and it caught that uh, cross cable. That would pull on the weights up uh, up the side of the ship, and depending on the weight of the uh, aircraft, they would adjust the weights appropriately on the sides of the ship to uh, you know uh, uh, adjust uh, you know to adapt for that. So uh, you know th this is a uh, you know you know part of the experimentation process that they were undergoing when they when they took the uh, Langley uh, from Norfolk down to Pensacola during the first two uh, winters. Yeah. What about some of that follow-up? You know, the, they really blazed the trail that uh, fall of 1922. But um, take us through the next couple of years of things. She starts going into uh, fleet problems and more flight testing and all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, there is a uh, a. Uh, <laughs> There is competition between I I I say between three distinct groups. Uh, well, first of all, uh, the battle fleet. A little understanding the Navy has evolved in this time period, where instead of having like the Atlantic Fleet and the Pacific Fleet, we have something called the battle fleet and the scouting fleet. And the battle fleet is the uh, is the brunt of American sea power, and we decided to base that in the Pacific because that's where we're seeing the threat is coming from, from Japan. The scouting fleet is uh, your, your cruisers, your older battleships, that's based in the Atlantic fleet. And what they would do every year uh, is they would kind of bring the two uh, fleets together for the, what would be called the, uh, uh, you know, the fleet problem, uh, uh, you know, battle, uh, battle exercise. Uh, uh, and so, the battle fleet out on the west coast, you know, they, they there's an aviation arm there, and the commander uh, of the uh, the, uh, the battle fleet aircraft squadrons, uh, yeah, aircraft squadrons battle fleet, he wants Langley there because he has a right now he has a small aircraft tender. He wants to have a flagship, and Langley is an impressive sh ship for a flagship. So you got that that pressure. Then you have Whiting, uh, and uh, who's on board the Langley, and he, he, you know, he's a strong proponent. We need this ship as an experimental platform, and let's not worry about getting involved in the fleet. Let's just see what we can do as far as pre uh, preparing landing gear and uh, 
uh, you know, getting the, the, the types of aircraft we need ready to go to fleet because the real uh, ships that we're looking forward to is the, the uh, Lexington and Saratoga that are being converted from battle cruisers thanks to that Washington Naval Arms Conference. Uh, then the, the, the uh, you have Rear Admiral Moffat, the uh, uh, you know the chief of naval you know uh, aviation, uh, and he is trying to sell Congress that we you know, keep funding money for the Lexington and the Saratoga, and there's concerns because you have this fellow in the army, uh, uh, General Billy Mitchell, who's arguing that well, we need to consolidate all of our air assets into an air force, and uh, you know he's arguing that you need to you know to take the Navy and Army and put it together into this this new force. Well, you know. Uh, the uh, rear Admiral Moffat is, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, fighting that. And what he, so what he does in 1923 is he calls Langley up from uh, uh, Pensacola and he sends the Langley to Washington, D.C. to participate in the Shriners Convention. Uh, comes out, the Langley comes up and is, uh, and it's not so much to impress all these Shriners who are coming around the country, it's to impress the Shriner in chief, who is President Harding. And uh, uh, President Harding uh, is very impressed. They actually do aerial dis- demonstrations in the uh, Potomac off Haynes Point. And the Navy gets such good PR off of this that uh, Moffat then sends uh, Langley up to New York to Newport, to Boston, top to Portland, spends the whole uh, autumn of 1923, you know, doing these flight demonstrations. And you got to remember, back in the 20s, uh, air shows were big, and, you know, uh, thousands of people would line the shoreline to watch, uh, you know, planes take off and land. So, yeah, th- there's a, a beautiful shot of Langley off uh, Hain Point uh, in Washington, D.C. So, you know, it, and, and it, uh, so, you know, Langley's tour uh, of the Northeast really sold naval aviation and secured the funding for, you know, to continue the conversion of Lexington and Saratoga. And then finally, well, in 1924, Langley does participate in the, uh, I think it's the second fleet problem down in Panama and off of uh, Puerto Rico. And finally, then in November of 1924, uh, arrives in San Diego, where it's going to be home ported for the, you know for the most part for the next uh, uh, yeah fifteen years. And in World War II, uh, why don't we tell folks about uh, its eventual fate? Yes, so Langley's going to serve as the Navy's primary aircraft carrier until nineteen. Uh, a, a, a key person you, you, we have to mention is uh, Joseph Mason Reeves, who uh, you know takes over as the uh, uh, you know, Commander Air Squadron's uh, Battle Fleet uh, 1926 uh, uh, timeframe. And he's all in on making Langley an operational carrier uh, to the tune that whereas Langley was designed really to fly maybe a dozen or so aircraft, he manages to cram 42 aircraft. Uh, and, you know, on the flight deck, he's actually up there spotting them and, and, and this, this is important because we learn how to cram aircraft on aircraft carriers. And this, for example, at the Battle of Midway, because, you know, we had uh, our three aircraft carriers there because we they're so tightly packed, almost uh, matches the number of aircraft the Japanese have on four aircraft carriers. So, you know, this idea of being able to uh, then send off airplanes like 
one every seven seconds. And, you know, that's when you're, you're making uh, a difference. You're becoming, aviation is becoming an offensive weapon, something that, uh, 1929 Langley stages a surprise attack on Pearl Harbor. Okay. Uh, and you, you know, that's going to happen again in another 12 years. Um, so Langley, uh, it plays this key role in, de- in developing, uh, offensive aviation in the fleet. Lexington and Saratoga come online to, you know, to, carry, to take that football and run with it. But Langley continues on. Uh, being the as the only uh, sh- carrier capable of uh, maneuvering San Diego's shallow harbors, it becomes in North Island being there, it becomes the qual carrier uh, for a generation of naval aviators, aviators who will you know make a key difference in World War II. Finally, in nineteen uh, yeah nineteen thirty four, Ranger comes online and. Uh, uh, after 1936, the decision is to uh, convert Langley into an aircraft uh, ten- tender. We have the Catalinas coming online. And um, uh, so they peel off a f- f- the first third of the flight deck, install some big cl- uh, cranes because Catalinas are big aircraft. And uh, uh, Langley uh, participates in a couple of fleet problems uh, in the Atlantic, goes to the New York World's Fair in 1939, comes around and with the uh, uh, is sent out to Pearl Harbor uh, as a precaution against the Japanese. When the Germans attack Poland in September 1939, uh, Langley is forward deployed uh, uh, to Manila and supports uh, uh Air Wing 10, which is, uh, you know, uh, Catalina's and is there on December the 8th, uh, you know, on the other side of the dateline when uh, Pearl Harbor's attack manages to escape from Manila uh, with some oilers, makes its way down to uh, uh, Australia, uh, gets out of Darwin before Darwin's attacked. And then on, uh, Java is, uh, you know, the Netherlands East Indies is uh, being threatened. And uh, the Dutch uh, colonial governments, you know, asking for air support. The decision is made to use uh, Langley to transport uh, Army P-40s. And unfortunately, before uh, Langley could get to, to uh, Java, uh, it spotted on the morning of uh, uh, February the 27th uh, by Japanese, uh, you know, land-based naval aviation and uh, is, is is bombed and they have to abandon ship. And eventually, uh uh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's scuttled and, uh, you know, most of the crew get off, but unfortunately, uh, uh, the ship that's taken them to safety, the Pecos is then, uh, uh, taken out. And so a lot, there's a lot, uh, heavy, lo- heavier loss of life there. So, and so Langley still in existence today. You just have to go down and find it. Yeah. There are a lot of museum ships. If you can put on the scuba gear for sure. Yes. Actually, I shouldn't say that. They're actually um, graves. Um, anyway, yeah, so that she came to her end in the Java Sea, but she will always be have been the first. And um, Ward, why don't you um, – I, I was curious to ask you, though you're not the guest, um, what it would have been like to um, fly some of those uh, early aircraft and land on something like the Langley? Yeah, so, you know, I think we undersell the Pioneers that Davis talked about here. Um, as you mentioned in passing a couple minutes ago, what we considered routine was still 
pretty hairy at times. Um, you know, I, I flew from 83 to 98 uh, on five different aircraft carriers and four different fighter squadrons. And, you know, night ops were never routine. Night ops in rough seas like the North Atlantic were absolutely the scariest flying I've ever done, even when flying over, you know, hostile lands, uh, just trying to get the airplane back aboard was the hairiest part of the evolution. So when you look at the images that we showed previous and you imagine these aviators with no playbook, no procedural idea, and as Dave pointed out, the little hooks between the wheels and what do we call that, that device that they were- The bridge. The fiddle bridges. The fiddle bridge. It sounds like something you'd find at a flea market. You know, it doesn't sound like a, a, a rigorous piece of gear to stop an airplane that's, that's traveling at, you know, what, 60 knots or however fast those things came aboard. Um, you know, so I, I this is why we want to remember this period as we're talking about bringing Ford class aboard and the other things that are happening now. The U.S. needs to be proud of our carrier aviation heritage. When I hear the Soviets or the Russians or the Chinese or the Indians are getting a conventional carrier. I'm kind of like, good luck with that, fellas. You know, it's not as easy as we make it look. And I'm reminded of this time back in 1995 when the Kuznetsov was brand new on its first deployment to the Mediterranean and it broke off the coast of Tunisia. I was aboard as a department head in VF-102 with Air Wing One, we were aboard the USS America, which was about our oldest aircraft carrier, conventional carrier, and was about to be retired once this deployment was over. And we were fighting the Great Bosnian War at that time, uh, trying to get the Serbs out of Sarajevo to break the siege of Sarajevo, which we managed to do. But during the pause in the action, we hosted the crew of Kuznetsov, starting with their fleet admiral on down including a MiG test pilot who we flew in the back of a VF-102 Tomcat. And so our, what we used to call a battle group commander, now a strike group commander, Admiral Bill Cross, who was a Tomcat guy, did a uniquely type A American thing. So off of our oldest or among our oldest aircraft carriers, we launched in a single event, we launched 50 airplanes. They had one airplane on the flight deck, a navalized SU-27 that was grounded, and their, their carrier couldn't even make water, you know, stuck, anchored off the coast of Tunisia. And we launch 50 airplanes in about 45 minutes, fly around for an hour, and then recover 50 airplanes. Ta-da, right? And look at these guys, and they're like, oh, my God, what have we gotten ourselves into? Right. So the deterrent factor of doing something like that lives till today. You know, uh, I mean, all these guys have either passed on or retired long since retired. But the pass down is certainly like, you know, carrier aviation, American carrier aviation is a unique capability. And we can do a lot of in-house fretting about Ford and F-35C and so forth and so on. And this is what the Independent Forum is for. But at the end of all of that, we have to realize, and that's why 
naval history perspective like what we are doing here is important to remember where we started and what capability that has been yielded as a function of these efforts. And obviously I take great pride in having participated uh, for some years in carrier aviation. Um, and so Eric, I salute you for getting talented folks like Dave to be in the pages of Naval History Magazine on this very important topic. Dave, I salute you for this fantastic article. So thank you for that. And thank you for joining us on the Proceedings Podcast today. The name of the article is Witness to Naval Aviation History. And our guest has been David F. Winkler. Uh, Dave, thank you so much. Fascinating stuff. Thanks for having me. Our pleasure. All right, that'll do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. As always, this and every episode is brought to you by the members of the Naval Institute. For more on that, go to usni.org slash join. Again, that's usni.org slash join to help the effort. Every member is cherished and desired. So this form exists because of our members. Eric, always a pleasure. This was a great episode. Um, so thanks for everything you're doing there. And uh, I look forward to doing another one very soon. Likewise, Ward. Take care. So remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We'll talk to you guys again soon.